0: Good evening, everyone. Uh, Please read with me. We're reading from 2 Corinthians, chapter 3, verses 12 to 18. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit.
1: Good evening, friends. My name's Mark. It's good to be with you. Uh, I, I missed you last week. I was down in Nara at Nara Baptist, and uh, they send their greetings. But it's good to be back. Good to be uh, finishing off this little two-part series on sanctification with you. Uh, before I begin, I do just want to make one little announcement, which is about a red book that we're going to be selling over the course of this term. It's called The Hole in Our Holiness by Kevin DeYoung. Uh, It is a book that's going to pick up on a lot of the things that we have talked about over the last couple of weeks, and it's going to actually answer – A lot more questions that we didn't get to over these couple of weeks. So this topic of growing in holiness, becoming sanctified, we think it's a really important one for us to get our heads around as a Christian. And this book will help you to do so. I would love to sell you a copy of this book, but this is the only one I have and it's mine. So you can't have it. Uh, but I will sell you one next week because they're due to arrive in the post by then. So we'll make a reminder about that, but uh, keep that in mind that this might be a good way for you to continue thinking about some of the things that we're raising tonight. I, of course, am happy to try and answer some questions for you after the service as well, if that's helpful. Let's pray, uh, and then we'll dive into 2 Corinthians 3 together. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we we do thank you so much for uh, our time together already this evening, how richly you've blessed us and encouraged us, reminded us of your goodness to us in Jesus. And Lord, would you please do that again now, even as we read your word. Uh, Lord, help us to understand what we need to understand about growing as Christians tonight from this passage. Please, by your spirit, illuminate your word to us so that it would be clear and so that Jesus would be clear to us. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, back in 1952, uh, shortly after the death of King George, uh, and kind of, uh, we believe, to help with the mourning process for King George, the Queen mother, King, King George's wife, bought, uh, mother rather, sorry, bought, uh, as you do, a castle she purchased a castle in Scotland. It was called Barragill Castle, right on the very, very northern tip of Scotland to help her with her grieving. Uh, now the castle at the time, this is a sort of recent photo. The castle at the time was a real trash heap. It was dilapidated. It had basically not been lived in for decades, maybe a century or so. And the owner of that land, knowing that the royals wanted to buy it, just said, Oh, I'll give it to you. I'll give you the, like, give you a gift to the royal family. But, you know, the royals being loaded to the gills, That no, they insisted on paying for it. So they did. They paid the veritable sum of £100 for this castle. And, um, and so it was this. And this castle at the time, it was falling to pieces. Uh, and so naturally, once they bought it, they didn't immediately move in, right? That would be strange, wouldn't it? They didn't move in. Rather, what they did is they sent the royal renovators in who kind of camped out there for about three years and turned this place into something habitable and something fit for royalty. The reason I mention that is because in the same way as as once that building was purchased by the House of Windsor, there was going to be an inevitable change that happened to that building. In the same way, we, as the people of God, brothers and sisters here, whose trust is in the Lord Jesus, if you have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, by his life and death, then a change is coming. There is an inevitable change that is going to happen in your life. A renovation is going to begin. You are, we are all being made into a royal dwelling. Uh, all of that mould, all that mildew in the corners of our lives, all of those broken windows that we've been living with, those bits of decor that really are outdated and need to go, all of that change in our lives is coming. Just as it was a guaranteed fact when the royals purchased that building that things were going to change so Christ purchasing us guarantees a change. Because we heard last week, Rod preached, that whilst the message of Christianity is certainly come as you are, arms wide open from God the Father, come as you are, it's not stay as you are. No, God has renovation plans for you and I, and that plan is to make us more and more like his son Jesus. That has, in fact, been God's plan from the very beginning. If you look way back to the start of the Bible, you get this glimpse of it in Romans chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul talks about how God himself predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. When was it God made that decision for you and I to look like Jesus? Way back in eternity past. You can also see in the Bible glimpses into eternity future. If you look at 1 John chapter 3, and it describes what we are going to be like in eternity, it says that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is God's eternal purpose for us, to be like Jesus, to change. And I've got to say, just take stock of that before we even really think about what we're thinking about tonight. That is an exciting thing, isn't it? that the eternal God has decided that this is what your life is going to look like, that God is committed to making you look more like Christ, that is exciting, especially if you're someone who is well acquainted with your own sin. If you've done that work of looking in your heart and seen the darkness, you've experienced the pain that your sin brings on yourself and on people you love, your friends, your family, your church. If you know yourself to be someone who is still a work in progress, then this is very exciting news, that God has plans to renovate our lives. Now, I suspect, uh, if you're anything like me, that that renovation project that God has promised still feels like it's kind of in its early stages in your life. Maybe that's just me, but I suspect there's maybe more of us who feel like that work has only really just begun. Uh, Perhaps your experience, like it is for many people, is that when you became a Christian, you grew quite rapidly, as a Christian? Do you have that experience where things in your life seem to change very, very quickly, almost overnight? Some things that you'd been doing your whole life, suddenly you understood them to be sinful and an offence to God, and you stopped doing them, and you started doing other things, big, dramatic changes happening in your life quickly. But then over time, that growth, that change, it seemed to kind of slow down a little bit. And these days, actually, It's kind of uncomfortable if somebody like me stands up here and asks you the question about how are you going growing as a Christian? What change is God making in your life? Because, you know, often we struggle to think of an answer to that question, don't we? Maybe as we come to this topic of of sanctification, it's not just uncomfortable and perhaps a little bit kind of guilty that you feel. Maybe you just feel downright confused about this whole question of changing to become more like Jesus? I mean, how? what does that even mean? How do we go about that as a Christian? What does that look like practically day to day for me to decide today to be more like Jesus? What do I do in that? More to the point, what does God do day by day in my life? Now, what I want to do today with all of that kind of in the background is I want to take a look just at one Bible verse with you. We don't do this all that often, but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to zoom in on that last verse in that section that we read, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It is one of, if not the key verse, for understanding how we are transformed as Christians. And so what I'm going to do is we we look at this verse. I'm going to hope to kind of lay out for you, if you like, a bit of a pathway for what growing as a Christian looks like, just to make it really plain for you about What and how to grow as a Christian. Now, the context of this passage and this verse that we're going to look at is that the Apostle Paul, at this point in 2 Corinthians, he's been talking about the differences between the Old Covenant, the revelation of God to the Old Testament people of Israel, versus the New Covenant, the revelation of God in Jesus Christ when he came to earth. And Paul's been kind of comparing and contrasting the two. So we'll pick it up at verse 8 and read with me. This is the key verse we're going to focus on uh, on tonight. Verse 18, rather. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I, I think that this verse captures the essential answer to the question of how we change and how we grow as Christians. And the message of that verse is actually really, really simple. And I'm going to spell it out for you. I'm going to tell you what it is now. So if you tune out for the next 25 minutes, you'll get this. The point of this verse is simply that beholding Christ changes us together. That is the meaning of this verse. Beholding Christ changes us together. And so I'm just going to break that down into three simple parts. I'm going to look at them each in turn and build up a picture about how to change as a Christian. So firstly, let's have a think about what it means to behold Christ. There in verse 18, Paul kind of starts and he addresses the people that he's writing to here uh, with a kind of a strange description. He says that we are all people with unveiled faces which is pretty peculiar, isn't it? I wonder what you think of when you hear that kind of description. What kind of veil comes to mind for you? Maybe a wedding veil? You picture the bride walking down the aisle with that lacy thing over her face. Or maybe you think of, you know, a, a Muslim woman wearing a burqa, covering like a large portion of their face so they can't be seen. Uh, maybe those are the kind of veils that come to mind, but that's not at all the kind of veil that Paul is talking about here. Those veils are designed to hide the wearer from sight, Right? But Paul's talking about a veil, actually, that for the wearer stops them from seeing out. Very different kind of a veil. So it's not a wedding veil. It's more like block out curtains in front of your face. That's what Paul's talking about. Now, what is Paul's point describing us as people with unveiled faces? Well, In the verses leading up to that, in verse 18, he explains that actually before you come to believe in Jesus Christ... He says you are veiled. Your, your face is veiled. You are, in a sense, blind, unable to see the view on the other side of this curtain. In fact, in the, in the very next chapter, if you've got your Bible, just look a few verses ahead there to chapter 4, verse 4, where Paul's even more explicit in describing this condition. He says, chapter 4, verse 4, that the God of this age, and he's talking about the devil, that the devil has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, meaning that the message about Jesus Christ being God's son, being the saviour and the king, as that message hits your ears, instead of it kind of sounding appealing and wondrous and believable, well, no, instead it sounds dull and foolish and confusing that's what Paul means when he talks about your face being veiled. You hear about Jesus and you think, oh, I'm not interested. That doesn't sound important. Now, if you are someone who's here tonight and you are not a Christian, you're someone who's not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible is being very bold at this point in describing your circumstances. Because uh, you might be walking around thinking well you know what I know what 's going on in life i 've got a pretty clear picture of everything 2020 vision not a problem I can see all things clearly but actually the Bible comes along and says no if, if you're someone who cannot see the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ if when you look at Jesus he is anything except the centerpiece, the center person of the entire universe, The Bible says you're actually blind if that's not who Jesus is to you. Now, that was certainly true for me for the first 18 years of my life before I met Jesus for myself. My eyes were blind. And I want to say, if you're here tonight and you're in that boat, just entertain a question for me, hypothetically. Ask yourself, well, could it possibly be that all the other people in this room are seeing something in Jesus that I'm failing to see. Might it be me that's got the unclear picture of Jesus? Could it be possible that actually I'm spiritually blind here and I need a clearer picture of who Jesus is? That would be a question that's worth asking, I reckon. And in fact, if you want to ask that question, I'd be very happy to chat with you, but it would be a great opportunity for you to jump into one of our Christianity Explored courses. They're small groups that explore who Jesus is from the Bible, you can ask any question you like. They're great opportunities to sort of dig in and assess who this Jesus is. If you're interested, all the details are on our church website, or you can come and chat with me and I'll point you in the right direction. But back to our passage. Uh, we, before we put our trust in Jesus, had veils over our face. But the good news here is that God is in the business of removing these sort of veils, removing this spiritual blindness. You pick it up in verse 16 there, when Paul's talking about the Holy Spirit, he says that whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So, friend, if if you're a Christian, then that is what has already happened to you when you turned and put your trust in Jesus. You were given spiritual sight. Suddenly, you were able to comprehend the beauty and the glory and the magnificence and the authority of Jesus, that is, seeing him as he truly is. And, And in verse 18, Paul is addressing people who've had that veil removed, Christian people, you and I. And he says that, Now, as we are unveiled people, we are invited at this point to then look at Jesus and see the glory of God in his face. He invites us there to contemplate Jesus, to behold Jesus, be a similar kind of a word. That is the first step as a Christian, if you want to grow as a Christian, you behold Jesus now, if, if you were expecting maybe some like whiz-bang silver bullet answer about how you grow as a Christian, and I've just told you that the first step is look at Jesus, you might feel a little bit underwhelmed at this point. I get that. Because that's kind of strange, isn't it? If you want to grow as a Christian, look at Jesus. I mean, we know we know about Jesus. Why do we need to keep looking at him? Beholding him, what? Well, the, the word that we've got in our English translation there, contemplate, it's maybe not the best translation. It's uh, It's actually a more forceful word than that. Uh, contemplate sounds a little bit like, you know, absent-minded daydreaming, but really the word here means to kind of to stare at something, to concentrate on something, to to fixate your attention on something. It's the kind of thing that you do when you go to an art gallery and you stand in front of a world-class artwork and, and you stand there and you just pour over every single detail of it. You you investigate it, you marvel at it, you enjoy what's in front of you as you concentrate on it. That is what Paul is talking about here with that word. That is what we are to do to Jesus. So it's this kind of deliberate, active thing that you've got to work to do, to behold Christ. Now, the immediate question that I hope you want to ask is, well, how do I do that? What, what is that? Where do I go to behold Christ? If, if Paul says this is the start of how you grow as a Christian, look at Jesus. Behold Jesus. Where do I go to do that? All right. Some people might think, well, okay, maybe I look inward to you know connect with God. Bit of contemplative meditation, tune everything else out, go black, and then I'll connect with God somehow. I have a clear vision of God. Well, I want to say that's not what Paul is encouraging here. Some people might say the place to kind of get a, a clear vision of God is to go out into nature. You know, have no one else, no distractions around you, and just be in awe of the natural creation. That, that'll that be a way for you to connect with God. That's not what Paul has in mind here when he encourages us to behold Jesus. If you want to behold Jesus, the place to do that is in his word, the Bible. Now, that is what Paul has been talking about. If you picked up on it in this passage, verses 14 and 15, he's talking about times when the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Covenant was read and the Jewish people were unable to see the glory of Christ. They didn't understand what was being read. They missed Jesus as the scriptures were being read. But Paul says, no, for us, the veil's been lifted. You can read the scriptures and see the glory of Jesus. That is something that we can now do with the veil lifted. We can contemplate the Lord's glory in his word. To, to be very frank, if I, just to, so no one's misunderstanding me here, He's talking about reading and understanding the Bible well and seeing Jesus clearly in it. That's his point. Now, that is a peculiar thing, isn't it? Let's just acknowledge that, that that God has ordained in the Christian life that the way for you and I to see Jesus is by hearing about him, hearing him speak to us. That is peculiar, isn't it? But it does explain a lot of things. It explains why we are the type of church that we are, It explains why we preach sermons the way that we do, where we take a portion of scripture and we explain it to you and we try and show you how it connects to Christ. It explains why we sing the kinds of songs that we sing, which are rich in God's word, so that you would behold Christ as you sing about him. It explains why our home groups are centered around the Bible and not just kind of social clubs, because we want you in this church to see and to behold the glory of Jesus more and more and more. And that happens through his word. That's why God's word is at the centre of our church. Now, if you're a Christian, as I said, the veil has been lifted and you have already, in one sense, comprehended, contemplated that Jesus is your saviour and your Lord. Paul's saying now you've got the opportunity, the invitation with an unveiled face to continue fixing your eyes and your heart on Jesus and his glory as it's revealed in his word. So just let's take stock for a moment before we go any further. I want to ask you to to do a little bit of self-reflection at this point. I know it's uncomfortable when a preacher kind of gets you to do this. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. But how are you going, friend, at beholding Jesus in his word these days? Is that where your attention is fixed and focused? Are the eyes of your heart focused on Jesus as you meet him in the pages of the Bible? Are you beholding Christ? We live in a world that so many things are constantly trying to compete for our attention. From the moment that we wake up in the morning, we are just drowning in a sea of stimuli. And so the reality is that you will focus on something you will behold something and fixate on something, and it will take effort for that thing to be Jesus Christ. But Paul's very clear that the means of growing in Christlikeness begins with beholding Jesus, with the eyes of faith in his word. The second thing that Paul is going to say here is that beholding Christ is what changes us. Beholding Christ changes us. Let's have a read again of verse 18. Just have it afresh in your mind, verse 18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, Paul says that as we behold the glory of the Lord, what's happening is we are being transformed. The word that he uses there is the word metamorphosis. It's that kind of idea of something changing from being sort of undeveloped and immature into being sort of finished and mature and a beautiful final product. Uh, You might know the story of Michelangelo as he was carving the statue of David Uh, He was famously asked to use an old block of marble that had been kind of kicking around the cathedral uh, for about 50 years. And in fact, two other sculptors had already made an attempt at carving a statue out of that block of marble. This is a a replica that they think would have uh, been very similar to the one that Michelangelo used. Two other sculptors, when they looked at this block of marble, they saw that all the flaws in it, and they concluded that it, it wasn't deep enough, wasn't wide enough to make a successful figure. Uh, one sculptor had even started carving a large hole, kind of in between where the two legs were going to go. Now, Michelangelo, when he saw this, he wasn't kind of deterred, being the master craftsman that he is. Uh, he could see the potential in this almost six-metre-tall block of marble. And so he took on the project, and for three years, he worked tirelessly to shape this block of marble, just one hit of his chisel after the other for three years. Uh, Michelangelo famously, in this process, he described himself as like a tool of God, and that he wasn't so much kind of creating a sculpture out of this marble as he was freeing a sculpture that was kind of imprisoned within it. That was how he saw his work. Now, eventually, after three years of blood, sweat, and tears, that unimpressive block of marble was revealed as a complete finished result, and it was one of the most magnificent works of art in all of human history. Friends, the same thing is going on with us. The master craftsman is working away at us, at each of his children, to transform us from a pretty unimpressive and ugly, sinful, broken block of marble into something that is glorious, glorious in his own image. I don't know how many of you were here last Sunday at the 10.30 service. Our brother Adam Taylor was baptized at the 10.30 service. Adam comes here at 6 p.m. quite regularly as well, so many of you will probably know him. We heard Adam's testimony on Sunday morning, and my goodness, was it encouraging to hear about the way that God has radically changed Adam's life, some massive, massive shifts. Adam is a new man now. I mean, he's no statue of David. He'll tell you that. He's got a few teeth missing, but he's well on his way. He is a work of art, in a sense, as are we all. You know, in fact, actually, the the finished product that we are being turned into is going to make the statue of David look like a toddler molding plasticine. We are being remade into the very image of God. God is doing that work in each one of us, bit by bit. Did you notice how Paul says that this transformation is happening with ever-increasing glory? Now, that tells you something. It tells you that the change is going to be a gradual one. It's not going to be an immediate one. We are not going to wake up one day and suddenly be sinlessly perfect. That's not how God chooses to do it. And, and I hope, recognising that, that's reassuring for you because uh, sometimes you can feel a little bit paralysed, can't you, in your Christian life, a little bit worried with this sense of, oh, just, I just don't know whether I'm growing as much as I should be. I uh, can't see visibly the changes that God is making in my life to, compared to, you know, a week ago. And look, I'm, I'm not trying to excuse anybody's lack of growth. That is a real problem for some people. But we all have to remember that sanctification, it is a slow burn. Right? God doesn't just kind of microwave us into holiness. And so therefore, take heart that it is sometimes hard to see the gradual, often inward work that God is doing of transforming us to be more like Jesus. But that doesn't mean that a change isn't happening. It's a little bit like, uh, I think, when your hair starts going grey. Uh, I've started to go grey. Some of you may have picked up. And uh, to be honest, I denied it at first, you know, tried to just not look in the mirror at these parts of my hair and then I wouldn't see it. But gradually there's this accumulation of evidence and you can no longer deny the fact that, yes, you are, a transformation is taking place. Now, I, I trust that if you're a Christian whether you've been a Christian for six months or for 60 years, you will be able to look back over the length of time that you have known Jesus and see an accumulation of evidence that says that you are being transformed, that God is at work making you into the image of his son. Now, the the key thing really to take away from this verse, what it teaches us about our transformation, is that we are transformed as we behold Christ and his glory uh, the the lesson in this verse is that we become what we behold now the way that that works the the reason that that is true i think is this it's that when we Look at Jesus in his word and when we meet with him with the veil removed from our eyes and we see him as he truly is in the pages of scripture, we meet Jesus in all of his righteousness and all of his holiness and all of his glory. And that glimpse that we get of Jesus as we read his word, it captures our hearts and it satisfies our souls in such a way that sin and ungodliness starts to kind of lose its appeal to us compared to Jesus. And as you think about that, friends, haven't you experienced that in your own life at at kind of various points or, or another? As a Christian, when you're reading the Bible sometimes and and the words just strike you and convict you and you see a glimpse of Jesus or you're hearing a particularly clear sermon or you're singing a song that just portrays for you the Jesus of the Bible with such clarity. And in those moments, you are reminded of his goodness and his love for you and his mercy in laying down his life for you. And your heart swells with love. And you, in those moments, you want to honour him more. You want to live for him more. And the decisions and desires to to sin towards all of that ungodliness, it starts to look less and less appearance. Haven't, Haven't you had those kinds of experiences sometimes in some measure? That is what Paul is talking about here. You see Jesus with unveiled eyes. You've beheld him. And those moments are transforming you to be like him. It's what the Scottish minister, Thomas Chalmers, called the expulsive power of a new affection. Have you heard that phrase? The expulsive power of a new affection. Thomas Chalmers, he, he kind of posed this question in this essay he wrote, and he said that if you had access to all of the latest machinery in a sophisticated science lab, what would be the most effective way to get all of the air out of a glass beaker? Uh, and uh, I've, I've had that question posed to me once upon a time. I am not a scientific man, and so I started thinking about vacuums and seals and all this sort of stuff. Anybody know what the, the answer to this question is? What's the surefire way to get all of the air out of a glass beaker? Fill it with, Fill it with water. We've got some scientists in the house. <laughs> Chalmers said it is the exact same thing with the human heart. If you want to know how to expel all of the sin all of the love for the world, all of the love for self out of your heart, what you need to do is you need to awaken a new and stronger affection that fills your heart and displaces that evil. If you fill your heart with love for Christ, Chalmers said, there is no room left of love for sin. Now, if if what God is saying in this passage is true, and spoiler alert, it is... (laughs) If this is really how we grow as Christians, by beholding Christ's glory with unveiled eyes and filling our hearts with love for him, then what does that mean for you and I? What are we to do at this point? I think it's pretty obvious, isn't it? It means that our task is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Uh, We have to give ourselves to the task of seeing Jesus in his word, really seeing him, being captivated by his supreme worth, being filled with love for him so that there is no room left for anything else in our heart. That's the task that is ours. That is the pathway to growing as a Christian. Now, I do want to say very, very quickly, after kind of putting that burden on you and telling you that is what you need to do, I want you to remember at this point that you're not alone in this task. Because Paul says at the end of this verse that all of the transformation that happens in our lives, it, all this growth in holiness, it comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And that's really good news, isn't it? Good news for people like, I, like us who are told we're not left to our own devices. Because can you imagine Think of it this way. If if you came and told me, hey, Mark, I want you to write a play that's as good as Shakespeare, I'd say, that's nice, but I'm not able to do that. I, can't, I don't have the capacity to, to, the bar is too high, right? If you came and said to me, Mark, I want you to live a life of holiness like the Lord Jesus, I'd say, that's nice, but I can't do that. I, I don't have the capacity. The bar is too high. He can live that righteous life, but I can't do that. However, if somehow you could get the the mind of Shakespeare to come and dwell within me, well, at that point I would be able to write a play like Shakespeare. And if you could get the spirit of Jesus to come and live in me, well, then I would be able to live the way that Jesus lives. Isn't that exactly what is going on with us? We have the Holy Spirit living within us for this exact purpose. What an encouragement that is. You know, so often we we believe this lie that we're alone as a Christian, that we've got no hope, that we can't overcome sin. And I know for myself that I often forget the limitless power that is on tap for me as a Christian. The spirit of holiness is at work in each of us to see us transformed into Christ's image with ever-increasing glory. If that is what the spirit wants to do in you, wouldn't it be wise to ask him to do that? (laughs) to to pray for that kind of transformation? Robert Murray McShane famously used to pray, Lord, make me as holy as it is possible for a saved sinner to be. Wouldn't that be a good thing to pray? There is one last aspect quickly of our transformation for us to notice here, how we grow as a Christian. Beholding Christ changes us, thirdly, together. Beholding Christ changes us together. Did you pick up on that corporate dimension to this transformation? Paul says there at the beginning of the verse, we all are being transformed. All of us together are being transformed into the one image of Jesus Christ, the same image. And if you think about what that means, hundreds of people in your church all being transformed into the same image. I become more like Jesus and you become more like Jesus. What's going to happen to us in that moment? We're going to start to be a bit more like each other, aren't we? We're going to look a little bit more like each other. Well, not you know physically. You should be so lucky. But uh, we are going to be more and more like each other. And that is going to be true in the whole web of relationships across a church, isn't it? And so realise then that the unity that we have as Christians being united together around Jesus, that's evidence actually of our transformation into his image. It is a, a really good thing to remember that we are all pursuing Christ together. Because we need help on that journey, don't we? <laughs> with so many distractions competing for our attention and, and with the journey ahead of us that is so long and so gradual, let's be honest, it's it's pretty easy to slow down, isn't it? it it's pretty easy to make peace with those sinful habits and to say, oh, I can just carry them along for the ride. That's okay. It's pretty easy to kind of settle into a, you know, happy middle-class politeness instead of a radical righteousness and holiness that Jesus calls us to. You know, we, we sing it, don't we? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Friends, we need each other in this task to to keep directing our eyes back to our Saviour. Do you have brothers and sisters who do that for you in this church, who who are those people who constantly, like a dog with a bone, want to keep turning the conversation back to Jesus? You know, They want to tell you about what they're learning about him, what they're reading in his word, what Jesus is doing in their life, what they're praying for the people around them that Jesus would do in their lives. You have people like that, they are a tremendous blessing as friends. Now, maybe you don't, and if you don't have those kinds of people in your friendship circles here at WBC, let me encourage you tonight, why not be that kind of a person? Why not at your home group or whenever you hang out with people from church, whatever it might be, why not be that person who talks about the Lord? You know, it's okay to be that weird Jesus guy in a church environment, being the guy who constantly wants to talk about Jesus. That's a good thing. I want you to do that. In fact, I think the Lord wants us all to kind of do that because – we need one another. We need to help each other keep fixing our eyes on Jesus, and that only happens if we look out for each other in this task. That is God's design for our growth. Beholding Jesus changes us together. Now, it's, it's wonderful that the renovation work has already begun in each of our lives, but you know and the Lord knows that there's still a long way for each of us to go. And so as I finish, I just want to urge you tonight, brothers and sisters, to press on in that journey and to keep desiring to be as holy as it is possible for a saved sinner to be because that is God's desire for us. That is his design, his purpose for us from eternity past to eternity future. He wants us to be like his son. And he's given us each other for that purpose. He's given us his Holy Spirit for that purpose. In fact, he has already, in one sense, made us holy. And so let's be what we are. Let's be holy people. I want to leave you with the words from Philippians chapter two tonight as a reminder for us of our part and God's part in this work of pursuing holiness, Philippians chapter 2 from verse 12, "Therefore, my dear friends, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. Let's pray. Lord, please help us to see Jesus more clearly and to love him more dearly, and so be conformed to his glorious image together. Amen.